Amidst soaring inflation, policymakers across the political spectrum proposed multiple ideas to soften the blow of higher prices, especially for low-income workers and families. One idea that caught on quickly? Cutting sales taxes on groceries. The idea had its merits, but we'll look at why it misses the mark and why it is so hard to nail down progressive versus regressive tax policy. Welcome to The Deduction, a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, Communications Manager here at the Tax Foundation. And this week, I am joined by our Vice President of State Projects, Jared Walzak. Jared, how are you? Doing well. How about you, Jesse? I am doing well. Also, quick question for you. Um, did the pandemic change your grocery habits at all? Do you do you order your food now? Do you still go to the stores? How, how did it influence your shopping patterns? It's just made it a lot more expensive. And maybe it's that bachelor lifestyle where I'm buying all those prepared foods, which are those that have increased the most. Mm-hmm. I'm in a good position to afford that, but I can certainly see where a lot of people are really struggling right now because prices are quite high. They are. I think inflation's been the story of the year and probably will continue to be the story of the year. So let's take a few steps back to the beginning of this year, especially. A lot of states, in response to inflation, started proposing grocery tax relief. They wanted to put a pause on grocery sales taxes. Why was that such a hot proposal to start the year off with? In the past, when policymakers talked about either exempting groceries from the sales tax base or providing a lower rate, usually it was purely about progressivity. It was the idea that low-income houses consume more groceries, and therefore, maybe this is a way to make the tax code more progressive. And that messaging has shifted a little. A lot of the focus has now been that everyone's suffering, that you know, low-income, middle-income, just about everyone is paying so much more in groceries that maybe this is a way to provide relief. You know, you look at annual inflation up 8.3%. Grocery inflation is running higher than that, 10.8%. But for a lot of people, it's even worse than that. It really does depend on what you're buying. Um, some of the raw ingredients haven't risen as much. Um, meats have risen a lot. Prepared foods, again, uh, prepared foods have gone up quite a bit. And we can think of that as a luxury. We can think of that as being for people like me who are just too lazy to cook. But it's also a really important lifeline for the person who's working two jobs or who's juggling, especially right now, jobs and child care and all of these different issues often prepared foods are a lower and lower middle income you know, purchase. And that's where we've seen the most skyrocketing inflation. So you can understand, even if sometimes the policy is not the right one, and of course, grocery exemptions don't really help on the prepared food fronts, you can see where the pain points are and why policymakers are responding. So not only Wagyu beef and salmon are increasing the price, we're also those frozen meals you can get, uh, pre-made sandwiches, those are all seeing a price increase too. That's what you're saying? Absolutely. Often more so because they're more labor intensive. So what did states actually do on this front? There's been no federal action on grocery sales taxes because there is not a federal tax on grocery sales, correct? (laughs) That's correct. That's a kind of European thing, the value added tax that some countries have that applies to groceries, but not an issue here. Okay. So so walk us through some specifics. What states actually did something in this space? 13 states have groceries in the sales tax base, and Virginia has moved in its budget process to eliminate what remains of the state share of that tax. Now, uh, a lot of people in Virginia who think, oh, I'm not paying sales tax on groceries anymore might be surprised when they look at their receipt and say, oh, well, there's still a local tax on groceries. And, oh, that apparently isn't a gross rate. I'm paying full freight on that. But they have repealed what remained of the state's sales tax on groceries. 
Uh, Oklahoma is looking at repealing the sales tax on groceries. And a bunch of other states looked at it. Um, Utah looked seriously at it. Kansas considered becoming the first state to exempt both grocery items and prepared foods, including restaurant meals. They ultimately didn't do that. Uh, but it's very much an active topic. Even as sessions have wound down, it's something the policymakers are still talking about. And were states um, saying, let's do this temporarily until inflation cools? Or were they looking at this more of like, let's just take this out of the tax base for good? It's been proposed as a permanent change. And I think that's short-sighted <laughs> because it is trying to address some obviously immediate needs, not in ways that I think are well-targeted, but in the process, it is uh, really continuing to erode the sales tax code. Um, the sales tax base keeps getting smaller and smaller as we change what we purchase. And not only, therefore, is it undermining the efficiency of a pretty good tax, but it's not providing the sort of relief that policymakers often think. You go back to the traditional reasons why we talk about maybe exempting groceries from a sales tax base, and it's usually about progressivity. Mm -hmm. uh, the argument makes superficial sense. You can understand how people get there. Clearly, low-income households are spending more as a percentage of their income on groceries and all of the essentials of life. They're consuming most of what they earn, whereas higher-income individuals can afford to save and invest more, things that aren't immediately subject to sales taxes. Uh, so you can get why saying take some essentials out of the code might sound like it's going to help. But particularly with groceries, that's not really the case. Uh, nationwide, if you have a sales tax that applies to groceries, you are exempting purchases made via SNAP or WIC. Could you define those two real quick, just in case people aren't up to speed with the acronyms? It, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the Supplemental Nutrition Program, a lot of people still think of that as food stamps. Mm -hmm. That name hasn't existed for a long time. But this is the, you know, the, the food relief that is provided by the U.S. Department of Agriculture that all states administer um, and WIC for um, pregnant women and uh, you know, those with infants and children, uh, young children. Okay. So these are programs that provide um, nutrition supports for low-income households. And purchases made with those are exempt from sales tax in every state. Now, even for the lowest income households, SNAP isn't necessarily going to cover all of your grocery purchases, but it covers a lot of them. And what we see as states are potentially considering spending hundreds of millions of dollars, losing that much revenue to exempt groceries from the sales tax base, if they took that same amount of money and just lowered the rate on everything, they would actually be benefiting the lowest income households more because so much of what they're purchasing in groceries is already fully exempt. They're not getting a benefit on that. They would benefit more from reducing the rate on everything else they purchase. Again, when we consider that low income households are just spending more of their income on everything, uh, groceries is actually a really part, poorly targeted way to help the most needy households. So the motive behind these proposals Poor people, low-income people spend more on groceries. This is going to help them and not help the wealthy as much. But you're saying that's not actually the case here, that people at the bottom aren't really seeing the benefit of these grocery tax reliefs? They're not because the better targeted relief already exists. When we're already saying that for Snap and Wick purchases, there's an exemption, then finishing that job, in a sense, is helping the middle class way more than it's helping lower income earners. So if we're thinking about it as a way to inject progressivity, whether if we're thinking about it as a way to help the lowest income individuals, it's a really expensive and inefficient way of accomplishing that purpose. I think there's clearly legitimate needs out there right now. Uh, the lowest income households are suffering right now. Inflation is a really serious problem for a lot of people. Uh, and states are sitting on a lot of money and they have the opportunity, whether it's with their own revenue growth or with 
the additional funds they have from the federal government for pandemic-related relief to provide assistance. And they've been doing this for those most in need. And I would say it makes more sense to target, narrowly targeted relief for those who really need it right now because of high prices and for all the economic difficulties that they may be experiencing than to carve up your tax base forever uh, in a way that doesn't really target that relief to those who need it most and creates a lot of challenges down the road. It seems like these proposals weren't by design really targeted towards those that they wanted to help the most. Did any states take those kind of criticisms into mind and create a proposal that would actually be progressive when focused on groceries? Or did they kind of just keep it this blanket policy, um, maybe well intended, but kind of just to fit the talking point that, hey, look, we're lowering the price of groceries for you. There are a couple of different approaches that states took um, in Utah. Uh, Governor Cox didn't like the idea of exempting groceries and favored the idea of a grocery tax rebate through the income tax, uh, basically a refundable piece, a check that you would write to households. There are some issues with this as well, including that it's administratively costly and miss some people, um, even though obviously it applies to people who don't actually owe income taxes, you still have to file. Um, there are some issues, but it's actually better targeted than just the grocery tax exemption because it actually is putting more money into the pockets of the lower income households instead of providing this relief really regardless. Uh, you know, We look at the distribution of grocery purchases and uh, a household in the top decile, top 10%, spends three times as much on groceries as a household in the lowest decile. They're actually spending way more than three times on food, uh, but a lot of the food they're purchasing may be like restaurant meals, things like that. But even the things that we call groceries for purposes of sales tax, they're spending 307%, uh, three times as much. And you know, it's unclear if the goal here is to say, yeah, we know this is economically inefficient. We know that it makes the tax code worse. We know that it means that we're you know, raising more revenue from taxes that hurt economic growth more than the sales tax, but it's important for progressivity. Then we have to evaluate, are we getting that progressivity? And I'm not sure we are with these grocery tax exemptions. Now, Jared, it sounds like policymakers are really trying to make these changes towards a progressive tax policy, but they they keep missing the mark while they're doing so. Just why is this so hard? What is it about progressive and regressive policy goals that make enacting effective policy just so difficult? The terms progressive and regressive can be very slippery. We don't have one uh, definition for both of these terms that everyone will accept. And honestly, the definition sometimes is um, progressive tax reform is tax reform mm-hmm. I like and regressive tax reform tax reform I don't mm-hmm. like. And I don't know if we're going to solve this problem on the podcast today. But oh, we might. We might. All right. We're going to solve it. All right. You and me, Jesse. <laughs> we're going to solve this right now. Um, but, you know, I think there's an interesting example that can be made right in this realm of grocery taxes. One of the ones we haven't really talked about you know, thus far is Kansas because it didn't happen. But uh, the governor of Kansas wanted something really different than any state has ever done before to exempt not only groceries, as we usually think of them, unprepared foods, but also prepared foods, everything, everything from that rotisserie chicken or that prepared sandwich to a restaurant meal. And you might think, oh, that's not as progressive. It's actually more progressive. Um, a little weird in that regard. But again, a lot of the prepared foods, you know, whether it's fast food, whether it's like um, ready-made sandwiches, rotisserie chicken, a lot of these things actually are consumed by working, you know, lower-income households to a significant degree. Not necessarily that high-end steak, but you know, everything else. Uh, so this 
made it marginally progressive. You know, when I've done the research on this, I've looked in nationwide on average, if you you have a certain amount of money that you're willing to reduce your sales tax collections by a rate reduction does more for the lowest income households than a exemption of groceries. This policy wasn't quite that. The lower half of households did see some really modest reduction. Um, was not significant, but it did exist. But I think it's really interesting then to ask, do we call this progressive or do we not? And it depends on your definition. If we said progressivity is your tax reduction or your tax savings as a percentage of your income, then yes, the first decile sees savings of like 1.6% of income. That's pretty significant. Second decile is about a little under half of that. And by the time you get to the middle class, it's half a percent, the uh, top earners, quarter of a percent. Clearly progressive, right? You know, the, the lowest income you know, earners have the greatest gains as a percentage of income. And that's often a definition used for progressivity. But here's another one that's often used. The percentage of benefits that accrue, the, the tax benefits that accrue to different deciles. And that one flips it, right? Because the lowest income households, even though they're consuming more of their income in groceries, they're not spending as much, not nearly as much on groceries, especially groceries that aren't already exempt um, under SNAP and WIC. So that lowest decile is getting 3.8% of the benefit. The top decile is getting 20.3% of the benefit. In fact, the top 10% get as much as almost the top, the bottom 40%. So regressive or progressive. And the reality is both of these definitions are often used and which one you latch onto might depend on whether you like or dislike the policy. Uh, I think we just need to be very careful when we're talking about tax reform and tax relief. You know, we latch onto all of these definitions. We grab the buzzwords you know, that help us or hurt the, the, uh, the, the claim. And we need to just take a step back and say, what are we really saying? Because especially if we recognize that there are always trade-offs, then if we care about something, if we care about economic efficiency, if we care about progressivity, if we care about neutrality, we need to stop and actually define those terms in our mind so we can ask, are we achieving them? Recognizing that by trying to achieve X, we may be reducing Y, are we really achieving X? And I think sometimes we let fuzzy definitions get in the way of answering those questions. Especially in regards to the groceries, you have a great paper at taxfoundation.org discussing all of those points in further detail. It's called uh, The Surprising Regressivity of Grocery Tax Exemptions. Uh, highly recommend you all go check it out. Uh, gets to many of those points and more. And I know you mentioned earlier about these states are doing well with revenues right now. They are sitting on a lot of money. Just to bring it back to inflation, your tax policy expert mindset, what should states be focusing that money on as inflation continues to stay high with really no signs of slowing down? How, how could states use that to especially help low-income people? Well, I would make a distinction here. Uh, the tax code is not the solution for every problem. Uh, if we're talking about tax relief and tax reform in a time when states are sitting on a lot of cash. Um, and in fact, even with some of the recessionary fears right now are still projecting significant revenue gains for the coming years, then we need to be talking about tax reform and tax relief that tries to fix some of the inflationary problems, or at least doesn't make them worse. Uh, if we're talking about a relief for individuals who are struggling, I think that's probably not mostly through the tax code. That is direct aid. And we've seen states do a lot of that during the pandemic. There's a lot of money, especially federal money, sitting out there to provide relief for individuals. There's opportunities to provide that relief to enhance existing programs temporarily um, or permanently. And that can make more sense. But on the tax side of this, 
uh, just consider. You know, a lot of states, because they're sitting on so much money, they're writing rebate checks or they're you know, temporarily suspending the gas tax or they're looking at something on groceries. All of these things put more cash into the economy. There are more dollars chasing after the same scarce amount of goods. And this is the fundamental inflationary problem that we're experiencing, that there are so many dollars circulating because the federal government has pumped so much money into the economy to help out during the pandemic. and we haven't fixed the supply chain side of things. And it's not even that supply is unusually low. It's that there are a ton of dollars changing, chasing after a relatively unchanged amount of supply. And there's also some mismatches. You know, During the pandemic and the sort of aftermath of it, we've seen changes in what we consume. And it's hard for companies to shift. We're consuming more goods and fewer services. So even if you have the same number of people working in the economy, to some degree, they're working on the wrong things. And Companies need to decide how much resource allocation do you change or how much is the economy going to snap back. So we have these supply constraints and we are not seeing demand, obviously, slack at all. It's increased. And there's so much money in the economy. And the challenge, if you're just writing checks or if you're just decreasing the cost of things through tax policy, is now there's even more money chasing after that same basket of scarce goods. What we want to accomplish with tax policy is to enhance the basket. We want to see greater investment. We want to see more productivity. We want to see a greater supply of the goods and services people want to purchase. So tax changes, especially tax relief that helps enhance the supply side by inducing investment, um, by reducing the cost of performing additional labor. These things make long-term differences that not only put money in people's pockets, but at the same time, create more opportunities for them to spend them on this additional productive capacity in the economy. Grocery tax exemptions don't do that. One-time checks don't do that. We need to be very careful in seeing those as solutions because in some ways they are just contributing in a modest but still meaningful way to the inflationary environment we're in right now. Jared, this has been great again. Where can people find you on Twitter uh, to keep up with this topic and everything else coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Jared Walzak, J-A-R-E-D-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. I try to make that name as hard to spell as possible, uh, but uh, they can follow me there. And of course, like you said, uh, my papers are on the Tax Foundation website. I grew up with some Walzak, so I knew how to spell Walzak in like kindergarten. It was <laughs> when I came to D.C. that I realized it wasn't that common of a last name. Uh, it really is not. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again, Jared. This has been great. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carvajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and The Deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation, as well as on Twitter at Deduction Pod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.